0: Okay, guys, welcome to another episode of Crypto Sense Podcast. This is your boy Carlton CO2 Owens, but back with another show. Um, Funny, today I'm doing the show from my desk, which is a time, which is something that I haven't done in some time. I've been on the go, on the move. Normally, I'm doing the shows in the car, but today, uh, I should say this morning because I'm recording this show at three o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm doing it from my desk before I get my day started and get rocking and rolling. So before we dive into today's show, I want to first give it up to our sponsors. Let's give it up to CoinSeed. CoinSeed is the app of all apps. apps. It's the app that allows you to invest in cryptocurrency all while using your pocket change. You can skip all the drama and the stress of trying to figure out how to invest in cryptocurrency and just link your debit or credit card to the app. And take your pocket change literally your your nickels dimes pennies and quarters and you can start investing in cryptocurrency in, in a portfolio of cryptocurrencies of your choosing so make sure you go over to the show notes grab the link and you'll be on your way to building a cryptocurrency empire uh encrypted apparel is definitely for those folks out there that want to look fly be fly and cryptocurrency conscious all at the same time you literally can get some really, really fly uh, T-shirts, hats, uh, cell phone covers, just uh, just endless stuff that this company's been able to brand and to be able to put in play that I think is really, really dope. So make sure you go over to their uh, website at wearencrypted.com. That's W-E-A-R-encrypted.com. When you get there, when you get there, just Type in CryptoSense, all one word C R Y P T O C E N T Z. You're gonna get a great discount on your cart purchase. Uh, last but not least, is is the folks that have been there since day one, and you know who you are. Uh, I thank you guys for listening to the show. I think we're rounding into we're sliding into our third year, potentially our third year um started doing this let me see this is january january 2008 i don't like to date the shows but january 2008 is when um we started this journey um my cousin and i co-founder of CryptoSense, shout out to ivan collins and um we've been rocking out ever since so um but through the process it's been that that team of loyal followers that's been keeping this thing going and so i appreciate it we thank you for the listens and you know who you are and now you all you can also support the show anyone else of course can support the show by making a donation which could be as small as 99 cents and this donation is not a something too serious to think about but it just helps us uh, do a couple of things that we want to do such as maybe buy some starbucks coffee or do some things that can help us get some more research or get some more f- cool and amazing shows so um we appreciate anything that you may be able to bring to us in the form of donation you can go to the last link in the show notes and there you'll be able to uh set up the donation and get us rocking and rolling All right, so look, look, today's show, guys, is is probably one of the most innovative shows that we've had on in quite some time. And I say innovative because when you talk about cryptocurrency and we know all the technology that goes uh, into cryptocurrency and all the the things that uh, cryptocurrency is solving, all the problems that it's solving. We we realize that there's always something kind of like that's tech related, but there's something to be said about innovation, innovation and technology to me can can go along, but may not necessarily go along. But when I say this is one of the most innovative shows that we've had, it's a it's a show that's really going to open your eyes about the educational system, particularly with high school um, education and the things that are being applied, the, the strategies that, that um, my guests actually, that, that you're gonna hear in the next segment, I had a chance to interview, you're gonna get a chance to listen to some very innovative means of, of, of uh, improving the educational system with the use of the same type of technology that's being used for cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. And so once again, it just shows you how this technology is really, really, really pioneering some some new problem solving solutions and also helping uh, with real world problems, real world problems, which, like I said, and I always say that if we're not solving real world problems, I don't know how relevant cryptocurrency is going to be in the future. But in this case, you're going to see and you're going to listen to uh, the content and you're immediately going to be able to cling to it and say, this is something big. And so my guest was definitely, he was extremely excited as much as I was to listen to um, what he had to say. He was extremely excited to kind of break down and share what he's been doing through his platform and through his project now the interview is so jam-packed that we just we just had to do a part one and a part two so today you're going to listen to the part one of the show and um it's going to be you know a couple of questions that i'll be able to ask uh you're going to listen to me ask and it's going to be jam-packed with so much information so consume it enjoy it all right and then uh, after the interview I'll come back kind of unpack a couple of points that that he's made and, and uh, we'll be able to be able to then take it from there and learn how we can uh, carry this thing forward to, to part 2 part 2 is going to be just as explosive just as jam packed as part 1 so much content so, so much to talk about so we tried to squeeze it as much as we could with um with this particular show part one and we look forward to try to get the rest of it to you uh shortly all right so hold tight don't move a muscle we'll be right back
1: Hey, man, what's going on, Carlton?
2: Hey, Carlton, it's a pleasure talking to you.
1: Man, it's good talking to you, man. I, look, I know you're so busy just making history and doing all different types of things, so I'm just excited um, to be able to finally get a chance to rap with you and talk more with you in terms of your project and just really dive in because this topic, especially with education involved, is something that's near and dear to my heart, so I'm just excited just to dive in and just learn more about you, and you know all the things that you have going on, the things that you're doing. So uh, let's just dive in. Um, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but let's just go back to the basics. Yeah. Which is, just tell me a little bit about yourself, and um, you know how you, you know, got into the the industry and all the things that's in between. You know, when, when it yeah, comes to the platform.
2: Yeah, so I've been watching trends that led to where we're at a really exciting point right now in education, technology, and we'll get into that more. And I've been watching this. I kind of saw this coming in the late 90s when I was a software engineer. I worked for digital equipment on-site at Netscape, and um, me and a few friends started a a company, a nonprofit called Sound of Mind, where uh, at the time you couldn't even share audio on the Internet. The Internet couldn't handle audio files, so we were distributing our audio on CD magazines but we would people would contribute audio by calling into our phone line and so we kind of already had this decentralized way to generate media back then um and we were just a little bit too far ahead of our time about you know 10 years later podcasting took off but we were still looking for it to hit education when are we going to move from worksheets to videos and podcasts right so just about me, I, I have a degree in physics. Um, I come from a family of kind of solution-oriented people. My grandparents were in the Holocaust, and they influenced me a lot. And so we're always talking about how to um, what, can, what, what systems and structures do we put in place to, um, to make things more workable for people and to bring out people's best selves. Um, I went into education in 2003 um, because I um, had had this recurring experience of feeling like things should be taught in high school that aren't. And finally, I just said, I've got to do it. I've got to be the one. Um, what else? I'm really big on data. I'm a, as a principal, I'm a high school principal now and um, I'm known to be a data guy. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means, but there's good data and there's evil data, right? You can kind of torture the data to tell you yeah. whatever you want it to tell you. Um, and there's some data that I think um, has a little more armor against that kind of manipulation by politicians. Um, but that's basically where I'm coming from. Yeah.
1: You know, is. it's, it's- it's funny that you say uh, you know, high school because I'm I'm thinking back over my high school experience and education, and I was having a conversation with one of my friends a couple of days ago, uh, and one of the things that I really learned in high school that was that's still kind of valuable to me today is just being able to type. I don't know if you went through that process of learning how to type in high school, but that class of just knowing how to type. It's something that I still actually use today, and I can really connect back to high school. So this idea of, you know, being able to get skills and things that are real pertinent to helping people develop and grow, you know, kids, go from, you know, typing or whatever those skills are to, you know, more productive is like one of the biggest disconnects now. You know, I think when it comes yep. to education, it's like people are going to school, but are you really being educated to, to, to yep. you know, do things that going to be practical? So, so what do you about that? Yeah.
2: Well, so, I mean, first of all, the typing. I My dad got one of the early, uh, first was a Commodore 64, then a PC when computers were just coming out. He was a physicist and researcher, so he brought those gadgets into the house. I learned to type so early that I kind of crippled my handwriting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was typing before anybody else knew that these things existed and and I type blazingly fast um, and it, and it's paid off in high school. I was getting paid 20 bucks an hour to type, you know? So I've, I've experienced myself the power of learning kind of digitally relevant tools early on. Um, But we're going, something's happening now that's more than just about what we teach students because the credits themselves, this is what I want to talk to you more about today. Mm -hmm. Credits right now are controlled by politicians who always wanna show education getting better. So they keep watering down the credits and they keep giving them away cheaper and lowering the cutoff scores here in New York in particular. And so it's kind of like money, they keep inflating, they keep printing more and giving it away cheaper. Mm -hmm. And so then the value of each credit goes down to the point now that a high school credit has no value. And for the first time with distributed computing with mobile phones, we have a way to create a credit that's controlled by teachers. And teachers will do a much better job making sure the credit matches real meaningful learning. And that kind of deep learning is independent of technology. Technology learning, and let me just, I'll shut up, but what I want people to understand is digitally relevant technology does not mean screenification, does not mean more Zoom meetings, right? Somebody who is advanced with technology understands that their screen is sucking their attention for somebody else's profit. And if we wanna create young people who understand how to make their own profit and not give their profit to the man, they're going to use their mobile phones to go to protests and make recordings and edit those recordings and be producers of content rather than consumers of content. And so actually a digital native young person is someone who doesn't use their phone to sit there drooling at it, but uses it actively to make things. And so then our high schools can become places that are maker culture. So I really want – I think a lot of people imagine the future with more technology becoming like, you know, some – you know, some screenification thing where we don't have teachers, we have screens. We need teachers more than ever, and we can get into that more.
1: Yes, you know, I I have to unpack that because what you said there touched on so many different layers of what it's all about. When you're talking about, like you said, technology and, and how people are defining it and how people are looking at it and the lack thereof of being able to really just decentralize this this process of uh people being able to get the knowledge to be able to monetize and to be able to uh, you know add value uh and and not suck up so much from a consumer perspective but from a creative perspective, you would think that these skills would be the skills that will be taught in high school or this curriculum so to speak it's stuff that should be getting more into our to our mainstream education because if you look at you know how jobs are gonna be created, how value is gonna be assessed with the bedrock now moving from you know industrial to more technology driven you know these these things are not being touched on, so listening to you walk through that process is really exciting because. I I think right now kids are going to school and they're not really they're not really incentivized really to yeah. to learn, grow and develop. And you gotta touch on areas where they understand and that they can see can really
2: add value to their lives and put them in a position to change their lives, you know? That's right. That's right. So the kids know that education is no longer relevant, right, in, the, in our general public schools. Now, the elite private schools are doing more project-based work and there are consortium schools and there's, um, you know, there are different groups that are doing this work. And so what I want to do is kind of connect them all together into a common um, credit. But so it's not – it's a lot of people see that, just like you. I talk to everybody. Everybody says, this makes sense. Why aren't we doing it? And the, the problem is the incentive structure. Let me just tell you right now, I'm an active high school administrator in New York City. And right now with COVID, what's going on, Right. Kids um, in the lower income schools didn't show up for online classes. I'm talking about high school for online classes during COVID. And if the school holds up their educational values and does not give them credit, they're going to have a crisis next year because now kids are going to be repeating the whole grade. At the same time, they have to do social distancing, right? So they can't serve as many kids at once. At the same time, their budget's being cut. That does not work. So what are they doing? Well, kind of quietly, the state and the city are telling them, just go ahead and give away the credits for free. Even if somebody didn't show up, just go ahead and give them credits so that we can move them along so that we don't get a crisis. So what it's done is devalued credit. And nobody means all the people in the education system are good people who went into education to make a difference. But there's something called a multipolar trap. If I'm a principal, and if I don't do this and give away credits for free, and I fail kids my numbers of my school are going to look terrible compared to everybody else. So unless it's, it's called a multipolar trap, because unless every poll, unless every principal together decides to hold a higher educational standard, if you're just one principal, you'll get fired if you do that. So everybody right now says, well, everybody else is doing, it. I better do it too because I don't want to lose my job. So everybody's watering down the standards, the Gungway standard credits for free. What that does do is it opens the door that any new credit system that comes online right now that actually represents deep, meaningful work, is going to be so easy to take over the market because what it's competing with is crap. Pardon my French. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, and so that's one part of what you were saying is that the incentives right now are, um, and I'm not, I don't believe we can change education from the inside, but I think we can do similar to what Uber did and just change the incentives. And we can talk about that yeah. more in a second, but change the incentives in a very simple, very basic administrative way that then starts putting, gets rid of that multipolar trap and that everybody then is incentivized to do higher academic work rather than lower. And we can talk about that flip. Let me just add one more piece that's from my book. A Princeton study found that of all the jobs created between 2005 and 2015, 94% were contractor temporary, right? So everybody is contractor temporary. There's no such thing as a job anymore. And that might sound scary, but the job was created in the industrial era with factories. Before that, people did work. They were craftsmen, they, you know, farmers, they did work and work is what gives us value and mental well-being. So we're going back to this work model where you have to have work ethic. You can't get a job, punch in, punch out and get paid. That's not happening anymore, right? That no. kind of stability does happen, but it's not all bad. If we can teach our young people to focus their attention with mindfulness, to manage their frustration that they have to do revisions and they can do meaningful work, they build that muscle of work ethic. We can have the most successful kids in the digital economy, and if we don't do that, we're going to have consumers that the other little countries who figure out how to do work are going to eat our lunch.
1: Wow! Yes,
2: so true, so true. You spoke a little bit
1: about your book. Um, tell me, tell me the significance um, of the name Tanisha as it pertains to your book. What? I love one? you
2: there yeah I I love that question so the opening of the book the book is called education in the digital age how we get there um and it's and it really talks about this distinction from having a job to from doing work uh from having a job to doing work right the opening of the book is dedicated to Tamisha Barnes um she is my foster daughter who's playing right behind me right now um my foster daughter's mother and she was homeless at one point and so we took her in and she lived here. We built a room and she lived here with us in our home. So we were one big happy family with our foster daughter and her mom. Um, and then our foster daughter uh, got cancer uh, got and had a bone marrow transplant. And now she's recovered and she's three years old and she's already beat cancer. Um, but the relationship with Tamisha and Tamisha's family, Tamisha grew up, I can see her house where she grew up out my window. So she's a neighbor. Her whole family's a neighbor. And we're kind of m- melding our two families together. But my commitment is to kids that grow up in foster care and kids that go to low, high poverty schools, low income schools. And so if I one to one can't help Tamisha be successful, how the heck am I going to try to create a system to help every kid in New York City, let alone the planet, be successful? And so my work with her and my relationship with her is really an important kind of touchstone for me to get grounded in reality, not to mention the fact that I've been a principal of a school for only kids that have been kicked out of other schools. I work as a transfer school principal. Um, I did work. And so I've always served kids coming out of foster care. So I'm really committed to that population. And so Tamisha represents that population for me.
1: Wow. That is that is good. She's really the the inspiration of, uh, as they would say, the muse uh, of... Yeah. Your work, um, as you look at her, you're able to um, be even more creative with trying to figure out these solutions for the broader spectrum. Um, That's right. This 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 question I'm, that I'm about to ask you here, I think plays in a lot with what you're saying, and it's really twofold. It is, um, how do you see really? The future of high school, and, and maybe the question could be the the future of education, um, and how does that really call, call tie into this change in economy? Because when I listen to you talk about these different uh, these different solutions and you know the problems that is happening <coughs> internally, you, it makes one think that. After you finish high school, you kind of going through this process of, you know, either getting credits or the you know, credits have been, you know, reduced to, you know, little to nothing. And if you're not really going to these major um, uh, public, I uh, mean private institutions, it's then kind of right. back to you into Ivy League schools, it's then tracks you into everything. You have kids that are finishing out of high school, and maybe they go to like a junior college, and maybe they go to a four year school, um, school, but they're still not having real skills to apply to an ever changing economic environment. How do you envision what high school is going to look like um, in the future? Is it going to be more, you know, more or less
2: the same, or what's your thoughts on that? yeah so I'm very specific to high school because I think uh zero to three year- olds are very different than three to seven are very different than seven to fourteen. So I work fourteen to twenty five that's uh, those are the kids that i uh, have and I've not only worked with I've shown tremendous success with I've been blown away by the success. I have worked with students on these hands-on projects, you know making videos and podcasts, and I ignore the standardized tests. And all of our standardized test scores went up in ways that nobody had ever seen. I took a school that was one of the 10 worst in the city, and it became one of the, you know, got the top ratings for seven years, and that was by building a recording studio in a greenhouse and things like that. Now, what does high school look like in the future? Um, it doesn't look like my school. My school is, would be allowed to be one of the models, but it allows for a greater diversity. So let me just start with the, the change that I see we have to make, and then we can talk about some of the implications of that change. The change is an administrative one. It's just unbundling the high school credit from the rest of high school. So instead of the New York state determining what a credit is, we would create something that I call digital native academic credits, DNA credits. And so one of these DNA credits, um, Resmaa Menachem is somebody that I love um, who talks about uh, race and um, working through the body and you know, how the injustices in American history have, have to be worked through our bodies. Somebody like that or um, Ta-Nehisi Coates or any of these guys could set up their own high school credit. So first we unbundle the high school credit and anybody can set up a high school credit, right? And then the kids can choose which high school credits they're interested in. So maybe the Black Lives Matter credit right now would be the hot credit to get in high school. The issue right now is high school credits never change. The, the Common Core came out. It took the you know, school 15 years to implement, and they're never going to change that stuff. It takes you know, every, once every two or three generations. These are credits that every year are going to be moving and changing. Now, how does that work? So anybody can go and set up what I call a gate. A gate is a decentralized high school credit right? And or a decentralized standard. So that person sets up a gate and says, this is a gate for a podcast. The podcast has to be 25 minutes long. Here's how I'm going to evaluate whether you pass over the gate or not, and here are some resources for you. The kids get to choose the topic, but the skills, social studies, English skills that are go into a researching, writing, getting ready to do a high-quality podcast, as you well know, you learn a ton by making a podcast. By figuring out what questions you're going to ask, right? That's all that – the learning kind of comes in three levels. You have to learn the material. You have to do those flashcards and quizzes and things. Tests still happen, but by teachers. And then you have to think about what questions you're going to ask, and you have to go out and get your guests, right? Those, but that extension level where you get the guests and record the podcast is what would be uploaded to the system. And whereas right now, if you have an AP course, you pay a fee to the college board to score your AP exam. All that would happen now is you pay a fee, the college board would say, hey, you can either get an AP, an advanced placement credit, by taking the exam, or you could take one of these project-based courses, and you'll upload a final file at the end of your course, and you'll get an AP credit for that instead of for a timed test, right? And so they pay the fee, and the college board takes that fee and pays teachers to grade the work coming in. The college board would set up an AP gate. A gate is just something that takes the noise of various different kinds of educational quality and just like a digital gate, just like a silicon gate with a transistor, just says above this level is a one, below this level is a zero. And that's all it is. There's no more grades. There's no more 87%. There's no more ABCD. You either get the credit or you don't get the credit. And the credit is not evaluating a human being, like I got a be. The credit is evaluating the piece of work that is uploaded. So the student says, oh, that piece of work got a zero, but I can keep working on it to go get that credit. So what does that do? That sounds – it's just an administrative piece, that these gatekeepers and these gates are controlling what work comes in. Now, there has to be incentives. I really believe in greed and in kind of base human drives. So the the students, everybody has to have an incentive. So the students might not want to take a test, right, or they might see this is more relevant. For the gatekeeper, a gatekeeper gets paid for that fee to evaluate the work. So somebody that is a podcast host can on the side make a few extra bucks evaluating work as a gatekeeper or a teacher instead of becoming an administrator can become a gatekeeper and evaluate work coming in. So there's an incentive there. Now a catalyst, Mm -hmm. what I call a catalyst is a teacher that works with the young people, not on the English or social studies or math, but on the podcasting or video editing that piece that our teachers might not know how to do. So somebody who's a young producer or has a podcast can on the side work with some students to help them produce these podcasts, you know, digitally, virtually, they don't have to meet in person, but just to help them learn how to make a podcast. And those people eventually can become gatekeepers. So instead of having to go to college and get a degree to become a teacher, they can make money as a gatekeeper once they were, right, once they do um, some work with students and prove that they're effective. So only people that are effective with students get to make money working with students, right, evaluating work. Right. So all these things that start, that start falling out of just taking the credit and saying, we're making this open source. Anyone can make a credit. Now, the people that set up the gates – they also get all the student content coming to them that these gatekeepers choose the best content. So if I'm a public radio station and I set up a gate, I suddenly have a flood of youth voices that fit into uh, the the specifications that I want, like this many minutes, this kind of quality, turn in this fact-checking sheet, right? And they get these packages of student work that's already been vetted, so only the good quality gets to them, that they can include in their broadcast, and we all know that the media industry is suffering financially. So now our high school's, become this hyper-local centers of media, right, that then can support public media or, or just, pub, you know, it can be Fox News, it can be anybody, can get these youth voices in there because media right now is suffering and we'll have the teachers as the fact-checkers. We don't have that level of fact-checking at Fox News or at CNN right now, right? So all I'm, so you're at your question was, what do high schools look like? High schools look like centers of media production where students come a few days a week to edit and work with the teachers, but a few days a week they're attending the protests. They're going anything their grandparents. They're, they're telling stories or generating content about, about issues that are important to them using the academic skills of research and writing that their teachers are showing them. So they're applying academic skills to interesting topics for them that are relevant to them. And so the school doesn't have to look any different. We don't have to tear down any walls. We don't have to hire any different teachers. It's just going to be that the students are going to be producing work and the teachers become like coaches or executive producers or something like that yeah you know um
1: when you were breaking it down, you were talking about it i was there was years ago, I was listening to someone talk about how the modern education system is currently uh been built and currently still following kind of like this old school way of being able to educate children. and one of the things that he said was that the um the education- system with the teacher student relationship was one that was modeled after, like, um, uh, pre-modern church, which was essentially, you know, having the lecturer or the teacher, you know, do all the talking, and the student would either do all the listening or just sit there quietly for hours on end trying to gather information. But what it sounds like is that the disruption is really in getting the students fully engaged in a very dynamic way where they kind of switch roles as being uh, the traditional roles as being the student as being more so trying to, to teach or, or learn through action, which is radically different from, Um, what is currently going on now, you
2: know? Yeah, it's an extension of what's going on now. So there's two things to what you were saying. There's something happening right now that happened to the taxi industry. It's happening in finance. It's happening in a bunch of industries that we call inversion from a push model where you go invest and make something and the CEO and their executives decide what to do and they push it on people with advertising. Now it's flipping and the consumers are becoming the creators. They're going to Kickstarter and say, hey, we'll pay for this. We're interested in that, right? So that, 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 Push versus pull—that's happening all over the economy. The shift from industrial to digital economy. That's what's coming to education. So you're right; it is a flipping where the student becomes the one doing more of the talking, and the teacher is listening to how the student ticks to get right the soil that we plant our seeds in as educators, as the student mind. So we have to get our hands dirty in that soil and get to know the quality of that soil so that we can help improve it and give it the right nutrients if we want things to. Do better we can't just measure how tall the corn is we have to actually get into the soil a little more which we haven't been doing now that being said we still need to have content you still need to have that lecture which now you can go on khan academy or whatever and watch the stuff so your teacher doesn't have to do it your teacher no longer has to plan the lessons because these gates will product, provide all the content and the resources for students to get you know to get going and the khan academies will give the lectures the teachers focus on being human beings with another human being or a class of human beings focusing on frustration tolerance, on mindfulness, on work ethic, right? Dealing with the real human struggle and journey that it takes to do difficult work. Teachers will have to be there next to the students supporting them and saying, it is frustrating. I understand your frustration, right? This is how you invest your energy. Here come the economics. You invest your sweat equity, you invest the time that you have, and you're going to get a return on your investment in the form of these credits, that are actually meaningful and relevant. And in the system that I've built, you can actually get a basic income award if you're one of the people that's producing the most content. So it's only—it's not a total change of what we've been doing because our schools have been doing that content layer, like you said, in lecture, and they've been doing a little bit of the application letter and writing essays or writing questions. They haven't been doing that third step of the extension activities where it gets exciting. So the schools have just been yeah. doing the boring part, and they haven't done the ex- Exciting part. Let me tell you one just quick thing before wrapping this piece up. In 1972, David Glass and Jerome Singer um, were researchers and they did this study where they put two groups of people in rooms to work on puzzles and do proofreading. Right now, in the background was this loud, random noise. I imagine like construction noise banging and clanging. One group was left alone and they just had to work with the noise. The other group was given a button they could press. Now, if they pressed that button, the noise would stop. The construction workers would stop. Right. The second group solved five times as many puzzles as the first group, and they made many, many fewer proofreading errors, but they never hit that button. They just knew that they could hit that button if they wanted to, and that agency of knowing that they could deal with it allowed them the internal piece to then focus on their work and not be so angry about the noise. The Japanese car industry did that same thing where they have a lever where anyone in the factory can pull the lever and stop the entire production line. Nobody ever pulls that thing, but the fact that it's there is a communication to them saying, we respect you and we honor you, and that position of being honored and respected as intellectuals, as thinkers, as contributors made them more productive, and so that's what this pull model of education is going to do, is going to say to students, you choose the content, you're in charge, you're the creator, and that change in context, and the teacher then just becomes a support or a coach. Uh, to have them yeah. engage with the materials that already exist.
1: Yeah, it's almost like the teacher becomes what I like to call like a player coach. You know, they're yes. they're on the court with the with with the students, or they're on the court with the athlete, or the player, or let's just say student in this example, and they're kind of just helping them through those points of, like you said, the frustration, and also the points of just encouragement to push through. To be able to continue to create and continue to to um, to to do what they're doing. The other part too that was pretty cool with you said is uh, it's allowing the students to be able to have like they should have a license to know that they have some level of control, some level of say, some level of 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 um, input as to how the process goes about. So that's actually pretty cool. So, look, this is what we're going to do because I know you are extremely busy and you're doing so many things. i got to get you back on. We're going to do a part two of this because there's so many more questions that we have to go through and and really tackle. So let's just tackle right here. This is going to be our part one. Part two, part 2 we're going to dive through you know, our questions around you know, the future, the disrupting, the currency piece to it. And yep. just take it to the next level. So I'm excited for part two. The audience is definitely going to be excited for it. So let's cap it right here, and um, we'll look forward to you know the next you know the, the uh, next time that we get on the mic. You know and just go through everything. Okay,
2: Carlton, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to that.
1: All right. So um, until next time, you know we'll we'll um back a little later. But thank you so much. Part two is on its way. All right. Take care.
2: Amen. Peace and blessings to everybody. Peace. Right. Wow.
0: Un- unbelievable. Incredibly amazing. Aren't you ready for part two? I know I am. I mean, it's just jam-packed with so much content, so much information, so many jewels that Nadav was really dropping. I mean, who knew all of the uh, specifics and all the the, the nooks and crannies, so to speak, of how this credit system works when it comes to school education, higher learning, and so forth. I mean, it really is a system that has to be taken down, has to be reworked and revamped. We have to find ways to be able to empower the youth, and education needs a major, major overhaul, especially when it comes to how we value the, uh, the credit hour. The credit hour is means so much in the educational system. So, I mean, what he had to say about that and how we um, look at it and how the education system is going to be uh, built in the future and how it's being built now towards getting to the future is absolutely incredible. Like I said, we have part two that's going to be coming up. Um, we should be dropping that really, really, really soon. And it's going to be jam-packed, just as jam-packed as this uh, part one clearly is some more things that we got to dive into and understand and be able to uh, walk away with. But such a, such a a thought provoking to- topic and you know something a little bit unorthodox from what we already have um, looked at when it comes to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. But clearly, this is something that is solving a, a real world problem that. Requires uh, us to, you know, of course, have an open mind about it, but ha- have a way, a a a real uh, straightforward path as to how to get there. And so, once again, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology shows you or shows us that it's possible, and it can help revolutionize and bring t- some amazing solutions to age-old problems, uh, age-old problems as old as education. You know, which which clearly we need to uh, modify and figure out a better way to make sure that our young people are going to have creative, innovative ways to learn and continue to push the envelope as to what uh, education is all about. So, stay tuned. Part two will be coming up very, very soon. Um, You know, once again, shout out to the guest. He he he's doing his thing. Um, dynamic teacher principal uh, thought provoker leader and so just just really just want to shout out uh, him and the organization obviously we're going to get more into the interview in part two and um, also make sure you guys continue to follow us on Facebook uh, Instagram Twitter obviously I'll make sure to put some fresh post up it's been a minute since I've kind of posted some new stuff but now Uh, With this interview, um, I have a chance to write a nice post and put some stuff up. So please, if you see it, uh, you know, just shout me out and uh, also just hit me in the DM. Okay. So until next time, which will be very soon, guys. Holla back.